Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now, I was looking at the lectionary readings for the next three weeks, and as it turns out, the next three weeks are going to cover the latter half of Romans chapter 8. And uh, since Steve is not going to be here for the next three Sundays today, he's at a family wedding in Chicago, and the next two Sundays he's going to be with the youth on a trip to Honduras on the youth mission trip. So I figured, oh, might as well do a three-part series on the latter half of Romans 8. Works out really well. Uh, and, uh, and actually, it's just such a wonderful piece of Scripture. And it's really the culmination of what has become known as Paul's Gospel. Romans chapters 1 through 8, scholars have called Paul's Gospel because he unfolds the Gospel in those chapters in such a wonderful way, in such a comprehensive way, and it's, it's comprehensive and helpful for both new believers and believers in talking about what is essential to the gospel and also how do we grow as Christians. And he wrote it in such a way because of what was going on in Rome. He wrote the letter probably around the late 50s, maybe around 60 A.D., And it was by way of introduction as he was preparing to go to Rome. And he already knew a lot of people in Rome because of his travels and because the network of roads that lead to Rome. And also because Rome had had persecution of Jews and Jewish Christians and then they were allowed to return. So he had come to know several of them in the process while they were in exile from Rome. So if you look at Romans chapter 16, for example, you would see all the people that he was greeting even before he had been to Rome. And for example, he he greets Prissa and Aquila. And I think he's showing familiarity uh, for the church of Rome and even saying Prissa. Prissa is probably short for Priscilla and Aquila, who he served with in Corinth for about a year and a half, maybe even longer than that. And shared the gospel and taught the gospel and taught the people in Corinth. And so he became very, very familiar with them, and they were leaders also in Rome. And he refers to Rufus. And many scholars believe that Rufus is the son of Simon of Cyrene. And so you can see how the network of people had come into Rome, and Paul had known a number of those people because there's quite a list of names there. And so he's trying to build up his credibility even just with the people that he knows. And if you look at Romans 15, he also says that he wants them to know of his credentials and of his person and of his gospel, which is part of the reason that he wrote. But there's another reason that Paul wrote. Paul was always trying to troubleshoot for the churches. And there was some tension in the Roman church. 
And the tension came from the fact that there were both Jewish believers and Gentile believers. The Jewish believers primarily were in charge of the church until the exile. Once the exile happened, the Gentile leaders stepped into the position of leadership. When the Jewish believers returned, then there was conflict. Imagine that, conflict in the church. How unusual. But there was this tension going on between those leaders. And Paul is saying to them, look, let's be clear. We're all on the same page here. It's really important to understand that. And so he starts off in Romans 1 by talking about creation. And God created us all. And how we're all fallen. The world is a fallen place. And then Romans chapter 2, he talks about how the Gentiles were given their conscience to guide them. And then Romans chapter 3 talks about the law. The Jews were given the law. And then towards the end of Romans chapter 3, he says, But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone. No one's righteous. No, not one. And so Romans chapter 4, he says, We're all saved by faith in Christ. Saved by grace. And then Romans 5 through 8, the application of that gospel begins. And how that works itself out in the church. And he talks about faith and hope and love. Those, those three powerful words that we see at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And we see those woven throughout as the gospel is applied to our lives. You know, the reality is what Paul's trying to do with, with the Roman church could apply to almost any church today. It could apply to almost any situation today. Because there's problems almost everywhere in the church. And sometimes they're different. What Paul wrote to the Corinthians is slightly different than what he wrote to the Romans. It's slightly different than he, what he wrote to the Ephesians. Because there's different challenges, albeit related, in different places. I just came from Tanzania. And there are very different challenges over there than there are here in some ways. We talk about some of the health care challenges here. They don't compare to over there. We talk about some of the threats here. That country is 50% Muslim, 50% Christian. The poverty there is overwhelming at times. Tanzania is in the top ten in infant, infant mortality rate and the death of mothers at birth. And it's interesting, what I went over there to do was unusual like any other trip that I've taken there. I've been going there for ten times, and I've always done clergy conferences. But because of the conflict in the church, and wanting to go with Rick and Joni Vanderslice to make sure that everything was okay with the orphanage, given the conflict in the diocese and in the church. 
we went together to check on everything. And what I discovered broke my heart. We often hear about in African nations, actually in many developing country nations, corruption in the government. But what I'm coming to discover more and more is that corruption isn't just in the government. That corruption exists in the church, too. That bribery takes place, that misleading people takes place, that people misuse funds because a lot of times there is not a paper trail. And what you can do is you can say something to someone and you can be deliberately misleading and get away with something. And what I discovered over in Tanzania made me very sad. It was a very difficult trip. There's challenges and conflict in the culture, in the church, everywhere. And we have our own challenges here as well. In the culture, in the church. In part because of the sliding culture that has caused compromises in the church because we're bombarded constantly. The sliding culture that we see pervasive in movies and TV series and even advertisements and how the values and morals have changed has pervaded the church. How dishonesty has become a way of life for many people. We're not immune to that. And what Paul is saying is if you're going to take this gospel seriously. Because Rome was pretty corrupt too. If you're going to take this gospel seriously, then you need to take it to heart. And you need to take it to heart with each other first. Because the church needs to be unified. The church needs to embody the love of Christ. The church needs to be a powerful witness. And that there will be struggling and suffering and challenges. And don't be surprised by that. Because this is a fallen world. And so by the time he gets to halfway through chapter 8. He says the suffering that you experience now. However it comes your way. Cannot compare to the glory. I want to pause there just for a second. Because when you hear the word suffering, it depends on where you are in life, how that word hits you. Like, for example, I started reading the Bible daily when I was a teenager. When I read that word suffering when I was a teenager, translation, when I have dating problems. Right? 
When I was in my 20s, married to Meredith, if we were struggling financially a little bit, because we were happily married, life was great, everybody was healthy in our family, how that word changes. As we change. Think about it. The more we're exposed to, the more we age. The more people we love that we see suffer. The more we see of the world. You know what we try to do in the United States? A lot of times we try to insulate ourselves by status, by wealth, by not serving because we can keep away from it, not get messy. But you know what Paul is saying about suffering? When we're a believer, when we understand all suffering is temporary because this world is temporary. Understand? All suffering is temporary because this world is temporary. That's good news. A lot of the suffering in your life now is temporary because it will pass. Right now, having come from Tanzania in a whirlwind trip, I am struggling with a cold and clogged ears. The good news, this will pass soon. That suffering will end. But suffering comes into our lives in a variety of ways. Health issues. Loved ones who die. Broken relationships. There are evil people around us. Persecution. Sin and its consequences. We could go on and on. Bad things that happen because we live in a fallen world, a broken world. Suffering is all around us. Nobody is immune and no one gets out of this world without suffering. But Paul says it's all temporary. And when you compare it to life eternal in and through Jesus Christ. That is infinite. And not only that, eternal life comes with joy and peace and love. That is infinite. And we need to remember that. Because so often we live for the short term, in the short term. Not for the long term. 
which is why we're unwilling to serve, unwilling to give, unwilling to sacrifice, unwilling to get messy, unwilling to witness. Suffering is a part of life. But it's temporary. Paul goes on to say that this world is like in birth pangs. It's groaning. In fact, really in many ways, this world is in futility. Because if you're living for this world, what you're living for is futile. Because everything in this world is temporary. Everything in this world, if you're living for this world only, will end. See? (laughs) Suffering at an early age. The only one that can change us and change our circumstances in some cases and can change other people is the Lord Jesus Christ. The only one who can give meaning to our lives and purpose to our lives that is not futile is Jesus Christ. The birth pangs that Paul's talking about, let me put it in two different ways. First of all, that we need to be born again. Born again in and through Jesus Christ. That the only way that our lives are going to change and that we're going to come to an understanding of what this life is about Because this world is in a spiral downward. There is ample evidence. This is a fallen world. And we're not to live for this world. We're to live for him. So the first first birth pang is for us the need for us to be born again. The second birth pang is all of creation. That there will be, at some point, a second coming. When Jesus will come again. And creation is just waiting, longing for that moment. When Jesus will come again and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And all of this, if you will, will be born again. Through the coming of Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. That's the groaning. And in the meantime, what we do as Christians is we live with that hope. The hope of glory. The hope that does not disappoint us. 
The hope, as Paul says here, that is not seen. When Jesus was in the upper room after the resurrection, he said to Thomas, You believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. Hope is about not seeing yet believing. That we do not see physically the risen Lord Jesus. We do not see physically at this point in time Jesus coming again. But we hope. We have the hope of the resurrection. We have the hope of the second coming. That's hope. And how do we know in that hope? Because Jesus rose again from the dead. Because Jesus loves us and went to the cross for us. Because we can trust him because he is trustworthy. That's how we can hope. You know what's interesting? Atheists hope. I guarantee you. Atheists hope God doesn't exist and there is no afterlife. Did you ever think about that? Because if there is, they're in trouble. And they're hoping for things that are not seen. We have hope in a risen Lord Jesus. We have hope in a God who loves us. But Paul adds a word here that's really, really difficult for us. We have to hope with patience. Now let me ask a question. How many of you would say that patience is like one of your number one things? You're really good at patience. You know, the first description in 1 Corinthians 13 of love is love is patient, right? Why do you think it's listed first? Because it's easy? I don't think so. I think it's because it is so challenging. We need patience. The only way that we can be patient, a patient life is a prayerful life. What would happen if every time you were tempted to become impatient, you would immediately become prayerful? What would happen? What would happen in your relationships around you? What would happen when you're sitting in traffic? If you immediately became prayerful, When you needed patience. I'm throwing that out there because I need to do that, by the way. We need patience because we wait. We wait with hope. We wait for him. We wait on him. And we wait 
on others. Waiting is a part of our Christian faith and life. And waiting involves patience. You know, Jesus tells the parable about the sower and the seed. And he talks about how there's the good plant and the evil plant. And I want to close with the whole idea about if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're supposed to be this good plant. What does that mean? Well, based on what Jesus is talking about, the first thing it means is you are supposed to grow up amidst the evil plants. It's a given that there is evil around you, which means there's going to be suffering, which means there's going to be challenges, which means there's going to be pain, and there's going to be temptation. We're about to do a baptism where all of us will hear the words, do you renounce Satan, do you renounce the world, do you renounce the flesh? That's what you're going to hear. That's what we're all called to renounce, because there's evil around us. And it's a challenge. Period. We're not the ones who are called to do the weeding, by the way. Plants don't weed. The gardener weeds. We're not the gardener. We're the plants. Plants grow. Plants strive. Plants produce fruit. That's what we're called to do. And we need the Holy Spirit in order to do that. The earlier part of chapter 8, Paul talks about in our weakness, we need the Holy Spirit. We can't do this alone. We can't. We can't deal with the suffering. We can't be hopeful. We can't be patient and bear the fruit of the Spirit without the power of the Holy Spirit in operation in our lives, which means we need Jesus Christ. And we need to ask Him to send His Spirit to us constantly. And that's how we live in this fallen world, this broken world, this futile world. And there's really good stuff to come in the rest of chapter 8. That ends with nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing. Let's pray. Lord God, as much as some things are different in different parts of the world, 
Some things are always the same. That there are good people doing good work. And there is sin and evil as well. Doing its work. And Lord, amidst those challenges, we need to trust in you and trust in you alone. Because this is a fallen world. And the things of this world will fade. And this world will pass away. What lasts is your word. What lasts is your kingdom and your glory. And we want to be there with you. Lord God, as we come to this time of baptism and celebrating the gift of life and eternal life, I pray that for those here who have never committed themselves to you, that this might be a time that they might do so. And come to know you, Lord Jesus, as Savior and Lord. And for all of us to recommit, Lord. That we would be people of faith and people of hope and people of love. Who seek to grow in the knowledge and love of you and live faithful lives. This day and every day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we prepare.